Hello and welcome to another episode of Evolving Prisons with me, Kate and Carrie. My guest today is Samantha Asudamu. Sam is a writer, journalist and former documentary filmmaker. She's written for The Guardian and The Telegraph and in 2022 she was shortlisted for the Paul Foote Investigative and Campaigning Journalism Award and the National Investigation of the Year Media Freedom Award. Sam is currently digging deep into prisoners on indeterminate sentences in England and Wales. These prisoners are on sentences called Imprisonment for Public Protection, also known as IPP sentences. These sentences came into effect in 2005 to detain offenders who committed serious crimes and posed a significant risk of harm to the public in prison until they no longer posed a risk. However, many people who have committed crimes without a violent element have been given this sentence. Each prisoner given an IPP sentence is given a minimum term, also known as a tariff, that they must spend in prison before being considered for release. However, many IPP prisoners are decades over their tariff and they've lost hope for release. Although the IPP sentence was abolished in 2012, it wasn't abolished retrospectively, meaning that there are just under 3,000 people still in prison on IPP sentences in England and Wales today. Listen to Sam and I discuss the psychological impacts of IPP sentences on prisoners and their families. How many of them, when they do get out, can be sent back to prison without committing another crime and discussions that have been going on in Parliament about how to move forward with IPP prisoners. A sentence that has been coined a stain on the British justice system. I hope you enjoy this episode. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. You are a writer and a journalist and you're now campaigning against IPP sentences. And I know that an IPP campaigner approached you and made you aware of this sentence. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what an IPP sentence is and why it's actually used? Yeah, so the IPP sentence came out of the Criminal Justice Sentencing Act 2003. That was something that was introduced by the then Home Secretary, Lord Blunkett. And his intention with it was that he felt that, well, there was there's two halves to it. One, there were some prisoners who were in prison for a long time and weren't able to get out because they didn't have courses or therapies and no recourse to go to the parole board. And on the other side, he was looking at victims. He'd come across people who, such as Sarah Payne, who was murdered by Roy Whiting, and uh, Millie Dowler, who was murdered by a... Levi Belfield. And his reasoning for this indeterminate sentence was that there were some prisoners who were going into prison and being released for whatever crime they'd committed and coming outside and immediately committing another offence, which could be as serious as, as murder. And he didn't think that the current legislation actually dealt with it. So the reason for the indeterminate sentence was they, they thought that it would deal with serious cases of GBH, sexual offences, very serious offences. And they, they thought that it would only actually apply to around 900 offenders at the time. This, of course, ballooned to over... 8,000, I think it was 8,700 people were given an IPP sentence between 2005 and 2012. The issue with it was that whilst they thought it'd be used for serious offenders, quite often it wasn't because there was a trigger system. And so what you found, especially between 2005 and 2008, before the legislation was changed somewhat, is that you found people who had committed very minor offences 
like a mugging or stealing their mobile phone, quite often without violence. And you'd find they'd get tariffs. So a tariff is given by a judge where you have what America might say is like a minimum sentence. So like, uh, say two years, three years and so on. And then you'd have the rest of your sentence was, it was down to proving that you weren't a risk to a parole board. So you found that people who did get, I think there's the shortest tariff that anybody's given for an IPP was 28 days. And so people with 28 days, a year, two years, two and a half years, have found themselves in prison 15, 16, 17 years later, not being able to to be released. And as you say, it's supposed to be reserved for the most serious of offences and where there is a serious risk of harm to the public. The IPP sentence was created in 2005 and abolished in 2012. But why for so long were people who were convicted of more minor crimes given this sentence? In the first part, I think judges didn't feel they had much discretion with the sentence. It became mandatory at a certain point. So what had been reserved for serious offences, there was about maybe about five or six crimes that trigger a life sentence. And what the IPP is, in effect, is a life sentence by the back door. But that those few sentence uh, crimes actually belong to 153 different offences that could trigger an IPP, which is a massive amount. It's incredible. And so you'd find any sort of small offence, if they had committed a previous offence, if it's unrelated completely as well, it meant that they had to give them the IPP sentence and so on. There wasn't much discretion. I mean, this actually did change in 2008, because at that point, Politicians were realising that the IPP was going out of control, really. And so then one of the things that they had to do was assume dangerousness. If there was an assumption of dangerousness, which is at the judge's discretion, one of the things at the discretion they had to give the IPP. But they changed that. There was now no assumption of dangerousness. And they also used, instead of must, they gave the discretion of you may give them a sentence. So you would find that judges could find exceptional reasons not to give them one. But they, I don't think, really realised that someone that they'd given a tariff of two years was going to be in prison 16, 17 years later. They just didn't understand it at that time. And the consequences, I mean, it's one of the reasons it's abolished in 2012, but not abolished retrospectively. So whilst nobody got an IPP after 2012, December 2012, all the people who had previously were still subject to that sentence And all the people who had got out of that sentence, having gone through the parole board and so on, you get something called a a license and license conditions. But for an IPP, it's a 99-year license, meaning that at any point, whether you've committed a further offence or not, it can often just be a breach of license conditions, you would be recalled back to prison again indefinitely. So for people who have been released from an IPP sentence, even now, does that mean that for the rest of their lives, they're on license? Basically, yes. There is now something where they can apply to have their license terminated after 10 years, and that's 10 years from their first release. Um, fortunately, there isn't a very big take-up of that. So some, prison, uh, some people on license don't know that they can do that. Some people don't have the capabilities or you know, the time to do all of that because it's, again, going back to the parole board and it can trigger some very bad feelings having to deal with the parole at all. They'd rather just keep quiet and try and live their lives. But yes, so basically they can be under those conditions for the rest of their life. And, and you actually find that people who will have gotten out, they can, seven years later, be sent back to prison. 
depending on their parole, uh, their probation officer's decisions. Yeah. What kind of things can they be sent back to prison for? Yeah. So what what happens when you go to the parole and you get your parole is they give you license conditions, and this can be anything like you're not allowed to go into a certain area or you're not allowed to associate with certain people. You have to be at a certain address. If you're in a hostel, if you're put in a hostel, which you will be initially, you have to be back there by a certain time. And if you're on medication, you have to make sure that you go to every medication appointment and so on. But what this has meant is that more often go back into prison on an IPP for having broken a license condition, which can be something minor, maybe it's something big, but it's not often that they've done another crime that puts them back into into prison. So, I mean, I, I can tell you, so we've been doing this sort of documentary series, uh, Trapped, and one of the people I've spoken to whose husband is bipolar, he he had license conditions when he first came out, and they said that you have to have medication at a certain level. And to get that changed, you have to go through the probation service. You, you don't do it through a doctor. And it meant that also, so if you weren't doing well, you couldn't really change your, your medication meaning that you could get more ill and so on. And so there was one person who missed the medication of the appointment. He wasn't doing that well. And his probation officer decided that that triggered a recall, meaning he had to go back to, to prison. But as his wife told me, you know, he was then put in prison and for five days didn't get his medication. So you wonder how dangerous are you for missing one medication in the community where you have your family around you who can support you compared to being put in prison for however many days and not getting that medication and not really getting that support from anybody who really cares about you. So there's been other cases of recall. Uh, Somebody I've interviewed who got out quite a few years ago, um, I think around 2012. In the next six months afterwards, I think he did get in some sort of altercation. But he thought, you know, I'm worried about my parole and so on. So he did call the police. The person he got in the altercation with had gone by this time. It's all fine. You know, nothing. He wasn't arrested or anything like that. But he did, you know, the probation now know this. And so they say to him, oh, well, you only called the police because you wanted to look good. He's like, what? And then at that point, they did. Uh, so, so quite often, prisoners are labelled with personality disorders. I mean, this is a whole big conversation that maybe we'll have a bit later, but I'll, I'll go quickly why he was recalled. So they gave him a personality test and so on, and he scored quite high. This later turned out that uh, they'd scored it wrong, but it didn't matter. Anyway, those two things put him back in prison for another six years until he was able to prove his way out. And this was someone who was like working, trying to do his best and so on, but still just like these little license conditions can put you back into prison indefinitely. Wow, that's so sad because we know that having a job is one of the things that is likely to actually prevent people from going back to prison because it stops them reoffending. So why are we taking somebody who's contributing to society out of their job and putting them in a place that is supposed to be reserved for people who are a risk to society? I find basically recalls have meant that the IPP population in prison has been rising. Now there's more people, there's over 50% of the people on IPPs in prison are people who are on recall who've previously been released. And that number is only going up and will go up unless there is some direct intervention, basically. You'd said it was Lord Blunkett who was the Home Secretary at the time, and he was responsible for bringing about the IPP sentence. I know that you've spoken to him on your own podcast, and I'll share a link to your podcast in the show notes because it's a very interesting and informative podcast about IPP prisoners. 
You mentioned in the podcast that Lord Blunkett actually regrets putting the IPP sentence in place because of what's happened. Do you know, is he doing anything to campaign to get the people in prison on IPP sentences resentenced? To his credit, as you say, he is very regretful of introducing IPP sentences into legislation. I think he saw quite early on that it was going wrong and since then he has campaigned against it. Whilst it was if it was Ken Clark who was in office and who was Justice Secretary when it was abolished, it was Lord Blunkett who, who worked with him to bring that about, that abolishment in 2012, many years ago now. But since then, he does keep in contact with people serving IPP sentences and their families. And he has spoken in the House of Lords many times. And I do think he campaigns behind the scenes as well. I think he sees it very much part of his legacy that this has happened. And I mean, who wants that? As many people or, or some people have said, it's a stain on the, on the uh, British justice system. And I think he recognises that and wants to see it resolved within his lifetime. So to his credit, because there's not many politicians that do apologise for mistakes they've made. But of course, you know, he did make that mistake. And it has, as some people have said to me, ruined a lot of people's lives. I want to touch on that with you, actually, because the Justice Committee released a report last year in 2022 about the psychological impacts of the IPP sentence, not just on the people in prison themselves, but also their families. And we're at this difficult place now where people who are on IPP sentences, their mental health suffers because they have no prison release date, but then they go for parole and they're often rejected because their mental health is poor. So what do we do about that? Yeah, it's so difficult. At, at this mo- at this point, like mental health or ill mental health has, has been criminalised because the parole board, they do have their job to do and they have got, a, there's a risk test, a statutory risk test, and there's only some certain things that they can let. The prisoners have to pass these tests to be able to be released. And unfortunately, what happens is you get reports from psychologists, you get reports from the prison officers and so on. And by this point, when people are very mentally ill, because of induced by hopelessness, people can act out in different ways. You know, prison isn't a normal environment for anybody. Like where in the public, you can walk away from an altercation, in prison, you can't. And IPP prisons are at a, are particularly vulnerable because of the indefinite nature of their sentences. They're vulnerable where it comes to mental health, but also vulnerable to other prisoners because what can happen is that they have to be very cautious about anything they do because anything can be written down in their file and it'll be a permanent file that's taken to the parole board. So something that happened seven years ago, eight years ago, could still affect them when they go for their parole review. So they can be asked to get involved in things that they wouldn't do, but because they can be reported on in any way by prison officers or other prisoners. It, it just makes them uniquely vulnerable, basically. And that obviously affects your mental health as well, not being able to have any sort of charge of yourself, really. You're at the hands of both the state and anybody who wants to make any sort of accusation against you. It's not unusual for people to get a two-year tariff and still be in prison a decade later. How often can they apply to the parole board after they've completed their tariff? So it should automatically happen at least every 24 months. But what you found, because the prison state is in, in disarray, is that, that can, it can be longer. They can be delayed. Quite often, actually, they are delayed. And sometimes, at some point, 
people don't want to engage with the system because they've done so much or they've been told you need to do this course and then that'll help you get parole. You need to do this, join this group or do this thing and that'll help you get parole. They go to the parole review and they say no. And they said, actually, you should do this course. You should do this course. So they're continuously going around in circles, doing the same things. And at some point they give up because they're like, I do not understand what is going to let me get out of this place that I'm in. And so one of the cases we've already profiled, which you, you may have heard about, Aaron, he had been told at one parole review that you should do, you don't need to do any more courses at this point. You've been in, I mean, he's been in 19 years now. You've done all the courses, you've done everything and so on. And so that's fine. Then he went to his next review and they said, actually, you should do this course and that course and so on. They weren't able to suggest going to a Cat D prison, which is an open prison, before you go for release. So it's very difficult. You, you feel like basically it's impossible that the system is completely against you, you know, and you can withdraw into yourself at that point because you don't see any way out, really. And so IPP prisoners are the highest prison cohort for both self-harm and suicide, at least in the UK, and over 80 people have taken their own lives who have been on an IPP sentence. Of course, you can look into the details of every case, but generally it's, it's agreed that this is because they just didn't see that they were ever going to have a life again. What did Aaron do that he was sent to prison for on an IPP sentence? Was it a serious crime? Yeah, so no. So he was sentenced for GBH, but what the actual crime, if you listen to it, is that he got in a fight with three other, other men. I'm not saying that's good at all, and I know it's something that he regrets a lot, but it meant that he was brought up in care. He didn't have a, a great life and he'd had you know, an other offence before. So it triggered the IPP. So whilst he got a quite low tariff, he, including remand, because he was in remand, on remand for a year, has now been in 19 years. And as you say, the impact that is having, I'm not surprised there's such a high risk of suicide. I sometimes liken it back to COVID where it gives the public a tiny glimpse of what these people are dealing with. There were a number of people during lockdowns who were struggling with not knowing when the lockdown would end, yet we were in a home rather than a cell and we were able to leave the house and exercise, eat whenever we want, do whatever we wanted within our own home. Imagine being in a prison, spending most time in your cell, never knowing when you're going to be released. Sounds like torture. People have called it psychological torture, and I agree. And, and there's actually a sad case that came up recently, a, a guy called Mr. Dennis, who, who got a, an IPP in 2008 for mugging. And he was released eventually, but then he was recalled in 2020 to, I think it was, uh, is it, oh, I can't remember, uh, Bicester Prison. And he caught COVID there and actually died in the hospital there. And you think, he shouldn't have been there. There is ways to deal with if you break your license conditions, there's tagging, there's all sorts. It, it should be everything possible to keep them in the community with the people they know and the jobs they have and so on. But yet put back in prison, catches COVID there and dies. And like, yeah. Wow, that's horrendous. Obviously, some people need to go to prison, but across the UK, we're struggling with overcrowding and understaffing. So why on earth are we putting people into prison who, yes, as you say, are breaking their license? But if they're not a risk to the public, we should be doing a community alternative. Why are we putting them back into an environment that is going to disrupt their lives? Exactly. And, and I mean, something that I know the parole board has suggested is if people do get recalled back to prison, there should be like, you know, a statutory 
28 days at the most and they get their parole because you still might not get your parole review for a year after you've been recalled, whether you've committed another offence or not. But you find often if, if you've been accused of offence and then that charge is dropped, you're still in prison for that time. If you get involved in an altercation with a number of people, if you've got the IPP, you go to prison. Everybody else walks away free. And and there's a really sad thing about it, and especially so let's think about Thomas's cases. He got an IPP in 2012 basically about four months before it was abolished in 2012. And it was abolished on human rights grounds, like the European human rights have uh, sort of intervened there and helped with how Lord Clark was able to abolish it. But if he got his tariff, which is two and a half years, if he'd been sentenced just another five months later than he was, he'd be out now, you know. It's with him, it's really induced very bad mental health problems. You know, he's had psychosis and he's reliant on medication now. And that's the paranoia and the just, yeah, just not knowing. I see. And it does affect the family members quite a lot. And I think, I mean, there was a report by UnGrip which said that families felt that, you know, that they were grieving their family member even though they were alive because they just didn't know when they'd see them again. And they sort of live that sentence with them and become their caseworkers because not many people are advocating for these. I mean, nobody really advocates for, for prisoners in general. So not nobody, there are groups that do, but for specific cases, you need your family members there to become your caseworker to try and sort out this problem or that or get in contact with your with whoever needs to be got in contact with. It's, it's difficult for families. I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning, it was one campaigner who, who just sent me an article back a couple of years ago and I was just shocked by what was in this article about this this man who'd stolen a mobile phone and was in years and years after his tariff his daughter had died in the meantime but she also told me a story recently about she's a family member her son has an IPP but she's in contact with a lot of other families and there was a woman that she was friends with over the years they'd become friends because both their sons were in prison and they'd always talk on the phone just catch up a bit see each other at protests and and then there was a time when she just didn't see her for a while and said oh what's up with my my friend I won't say her name but so she called the house phone and spoke to the husband and she said she's died the IPP has, has killed her she's just so worried about her son she couldn't do anything for him and he thinks he felt that yeah they had killed her too so so not just those over 80 people in the prisons, but outside it's affecting people probably as well. I know you've spoken before about the self-harm that goes on with a lot of IPP prisoners. And some of the things I read in the articles you've written, there is some horrendous self-harm. Yeah, it, it is a horrendous. And I don't know if you know the Prison Reform Trust, they did a, they did a study with 31 prisoners who'd been put back in recall in prison on recall and some of them have been there a few months some a few years and found that actually being recalled back to prison is another trigger for self-harm and that's when it can get really bad because you just you know you've had that time out and you thought okay things can get better maybe this will be okay and you get recalled and it just that's you know you feel hopeless but I mean, actually being on license out can also induce anxiety as well because of these conditions and just this, you know, like walking on eggshells that something's going to put you back in there, which is quite possible something will, even if it's out of your out of your control. But yeah, self-help, there's, there's been really quite horrendous cases, some of them as a protest. People, oh, I, I don't know how graphic you can get, but it's a person who cut off his ear, which is horrible. 
And this was, you know, as a protest against the centre, I need to get out, I want the attention, I want people to know about it. But there was also a person we spoke to who was in, I forget the name of which prison, but he'd been self-harming for years, sort of cutting at his leg in the same place. And it eventually got to the point where they had to amputate it, which is uh, pretty horrific, really. State taking away your lives and your limbs now. They say that when people leave prison, they want them to be reintegrated back into the community. But can we really say that prisoners rehabilitating people and reintegrating them when they have such strict licensing conditions, which means that they can be recalled to prison for sometimes missing an appointment? Yeah, it makes you live half a life because you've always got an eye on how you behave or how you act. And and it it can be, unfortunately, it can be as little as you don't get on with your neighbour and the neighbour, if they want to, if they know you've got an IPP, can say something to the police, accuse you of anything, whether it's true or not, whether you get convicted or not, you will be sent back. So just a little ac- accusation. So how can you live your life if you're not al- able to be you know, free and, and do the jobs you want and see the people you want? And so, yeah. So if they got sent back to prison in that case with the neighbour, would there be another trial or how does this work? No, what they'd have to do is go through the parole process again. So. Um, if they're lucky, they'll get a parole review within sort of nine months. If they're not lucky, it will be longer. And that is a matter of proving again that you're not a risk to the public. But quite often when you've got mental health issues, you've, you're more a risk to yourself than you are to any member of the public. But that isn't what passes the, the risk release test, the statutory test that the parole board have to, have to do. So, yeah, so that's an issue. I just want to highlight how serious this situation with IPP prisoners is. That there are people who have maybe committed murder who are being released from prison earlier than somebody who has stolen a mobile phone. That's absolutely the case. And what you find is these prisoners with IPP sentences have to see their cellmate, the person in the next cell who's committed this offence or that offence, murder, something very serious, leave prison while they're still there. And that causes even more resentment isn't really the right word, but it again induces hopelessness. Why is this person getting out while I'm still, you know, I'm not able to see my family members? And I stole a mobile phone 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And not to say there isn't some people on IPP sentences with more serious crimes they've done, but what my issue is, is the determinancy or the indeterminacy of the sentence. Whether you have committed GBH or murder or whatever crime, you should have a determinate ending to your sentence, something to work towards, to know then that is what we see as the justice system where justice has been applied and used correctly, where you know you're going to get out. So regardless of what they've done, that is what they should have had. And the fact that it wasn't abolished retrospectively is the true sort of injustice to me on top of the sentences just even being introduced. And obviously the government was asked to resentence people who are on IPPs and they said they weren't going to do that because it would mean that there would be the immediate release of people who are a risk to the public. But then people came out and said, we're not asking you to release everyone, we're asking you to resentence them. And I know in April this year, the government said that they were going to do something about this, but with public protection being the priority. So what are they going to do? Do you know if they have a plan? Yeah, there is the action plan. It's a renewed action plan. There was one um, a few years ago. To me, I've read it and it seems like empty words. The main purpose of the action plan that I've seen is that they will say there's accountability. There's going to be new 
new staff members added to say that this happens on this day and this happens on this day and so on. But it doesn't actually really address what's happening at parole. It means that there'll be a, a new board set up, which will include campaign managers just to look at cases and so on and see that things are going as they say it's planned. But it looks like a lot of data. There's going to be more data collected and it's going to be more transparent. I mean, fine, that's a good thing, but that doesn't really address these nearly, it's 2,916 at the moment, people who are in there not able to, to get out because of the parole tests, basically. So, I mean, even the parole board have said previously that they don't think that they have the capabilities to deal with IPP prisoners as they are. It does need statutory intervention. The thing is, the Justice Committee, they did a really wide and long-ranging inquiry over over a year and apparently they had the most submissions from various stakeholders and prisoners themselves some prison reform trust inquests all sorts of people psychologists forensic psychologists and so on they submitted to the justice committee they they weren't trying to be liberal you know with that that whole nonsense thing that the right wing papers talk about liberal judges and all of this stuff but they were they were doing a forensic look at it and they came up with very fair recommendations. The two biggest ones was the resentencing and then also the license condition being moved down instead of 10 years for review down to five years at least. So they get a better chance. But both were rejected. And 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 to the credit of the the head of the sorry, the chair of the Justice Committee, Sir Bob Neal, he has since been quite vocal and vociferous about trying to still get the resentencing through Parliament, through the Victims and Prisoners Bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment, but also just very publicly saying that this, you know, they got it wrong. The, the Justice Secretary of the time, Dominic Raab, got it wrong. And now that we've had a new Justice Secretary come in, in the meantime, unfortunately, after the recommendations have been rejected, he does still have a chance to reverse that. He will or not, time will tell, but we think this is a really important year because it's likely there's going to be a general election next year. It could be a change of government, quite likely. And in general, justice secretaries only have, on average, one year and three months in office, which is crazy. So so whatever happens, he hasn't got long, but he has been the most encouraging justice secretary, let's say, in recent years and how he talks about the sentence. You know, he wrote in 2017 that if we don't deal with this, there'll be blood on our on our hands and so on. And he sees it as an, a very unjust and it should never have been introduced. But what you say out of, of power can be very different from what you do once you do have the power, which he does do, he does have to just do the resentencing. And it, and it isn't what they say, because they've used very loaded language in how they've responded to the Justice Committee's sentencing. They say you can't just release prisoners that everybody would get. That isn't what the Justice Committee suggested. There would be an expert panel who would manage this and see the feasibility. Of course, it's feasible, but find the best ways to do this. Because obviously, as we've said, a lot of people have now got mental health issues induced by the sentence. So you have to find the right way to do it. So not everybody's going to walk out their door at the moment, but it does give them some hope. The resentencing would give them a determinate date. You know, So the government have done is stay on the side of caution. Caution, I don't know if that's the right word, but they keep saying, you know, protection of the public and so on. But this is something that is red meat to the to the right wing papers and so on, who would be very quick to jump on a justice secretary if there was ever, God forbid, uh, something to happen. 
once one of the prisoners are released. But that's very rare. I mean, even Alex Chalk said that 99% of prisoners who do go through the parole process and who are released do not go on to commit another serious crime. But you can't, uh, you can't predict things. And I don't think that's the business of, of justice to predict what's happening. You deal with, with what's happened. As you say, with Alex Chalk, he had said about this being a stain on the British justice system. And yes, it's great if they do get this expert panel in place to manage this effectively. But what happens to the people who have been really psychologically impacted by their sentence? Can they ever go back to the way they were before? I'm not sure they could. So what happens to them? Are they further punished and kept in prison because their mental health has suffered? Yeah, this is difficult because, I mean, there are advances in mental health care and even with stroke patients and so on, there is now evidence that people, depending on their treatment, can get better. Where it comes to psychological torture, I'm not confident that people will get better, but they don't have to be in a secure mental health unit in my prison. They shouldn't be in a prison environment. That just doesn't help anybody. So... Yeah, maybe they're not going to go back to the community, but maybe they're in a proper, decent hospital that will look look after them and not have that threat of being put back into prison at any moment. Because what happens is those prisoners whose mental health are so bad do go to secure mental health units and maybe they'll get a bit better, but then they're put back into prison where they just get worse again. It's a revolving, revolving door. But, I mean, yeah, a lot of people of those people have been damaged by the sentence. And I've talked to to family members who say when they talk to them that they just don't seem like the same person they were when they were with them in the community. So so it's difficult. I mean, this is why some families members think that they haven't done resentencing because they're afraid that people will demand compensation, which is a possibility. But I don't think at this point anybody, that's not the primary goal of any of this. They just want their family members back at home. Understandably. And it's difficult for prison staff as well, because how much can they help turn these people's lives around when the people in prison themselves have lost all hope? If a person has no hope, they have nothing. So what is your hope going forward? There's the Victims and Prisoners Bill, but how do you hope we move forward? Yes, there is the Victims and Prisoners Bill. And some people see a lot of hope in that. But I worry that, again, there is going to be a change of government and that that won't go through. I mean, people are fighting to put this resentencing in it. And also there's a contentious bit of this bill about parole in it as well, that people are trying to get removed, such as the Howard League and so on. But for me, regardless if it all went right in that thing, it's going to take a long time. These bills take, you know, year, two years to actually get passed. and. One thing I found with all of this over the years is there's no sense of urgency that people have. And, and, and I don't quite understand it because one day in prison is a day away from your life, your normal life. So, so having a parole review delayed for six months seems to be a normal thing. And, and I think, and I don't understand how that can be. You're, ta- you're, you're delaying, and it's a very simple word, but that's six months of someone's life you've taken again. So what I'd like to see... There's more pressure put on Alex Chalk. I think, as I said, he's he's been the most encouraging. It's, it's not a perfect situation at all. But he's been the most encouraging out of the Justice Secretaries for actually dealing with this historic issue. So I'd like to see more pressure, more pressure, more pressure on him to, as he could do as Justice Secretary, sort of reverse that first position that Dominic Raab took. 
I guess that's a short way through. Otherwise, it's going to be have to done through Parliament with something such as this bill. But really, Labour haven't said as much as they could on this issue. And I was surprised once getting involved in it. It's more Conservative MPs who and, and the Lords who, who do speak up about this issue and campaign themselves. There's a particularly vociferous campaigner, Lord Moylan, who pushes through a lot of things and does a lot of the backroom talk. So it's possible that Labour might be our next government. I'd like to see them getting a bit more vocal and a bit more interested in this because, you know, if you watch Prime Minister's PMQs and so on at the moment, it's all tough on crime, tough on crime. And this is this is where this whole thing came, you know, in the 90s, both Labour and Conservatives suddenly, even though it looked like crime was falling, suddenly started going on about tough on crime and we need to be tougher. And what that resulted in was tougher sentencing. And also something I've just researched recently is that the prison population went up by 50% between 1993 and 2012. Obviously, that covers a lot of Tony Blair and then his government, New Labour, which introduced this sentence as well and introduced ASBOs and, and so on. It doesn't seem to be abating. There's still the tough on crime talk and so on, which is fine, but less more. You don't hear so much about tough on the causes of crime thing and sorting out things in, in, in the community that would help people that they never went into this, got into this situation at all. But it's, yeah, it's a worry. Especially when people don't know about it, people might not necessarily know that IPP sentences exist. And how is it that it's not more widely known about that there are people in prison on indeterminate sentences with no release date? In the early days, even the people that got the sentence and their families didn't really know what an IPP was until you know it came up to their tariff date when they assumed that their family members or themselves would be getting out of prison, you know. So the cohort who went in 2005 were thinking, oh, 2007, I'll be, I'll be out. And it was at that point that it became clear what the, what the sentence was. So if even the people who were subjected to this didn't really know what it was, it's not surprising that the general public don't. I mean, it's something that a lot of people have been trying to create awareness about it. And awareness is great. It is good that the public know about it and they can write to their MPs, they can get them to ask questions in Parliament and so on. But it's putting pressure on the politicians to sort this out at this point. You know, there's no other, I don't think, I mean, one thing I spoke to Lord Clark and, and who, as I said, abolished it in 2012. And he, and I asked him a couple of times, why didn't he retrospectively abolish it? Because I wanted to, you know, this is the big question that I talked to families and prisoners about. And like, he should have done it then. Like, look at us now, 11 years later. And, and he's very proud that he abolished it. But he did think that it was something the parole board would be able to deal with in the time afterwards and, and and he sees now yeah 11 years later that that just wasn't the case yeah I don't know it's, it's yeah, it can be a bit overwhelming at, at some point some of this because um and because often you find it is the people who did commit the most minor offenses who spend a bit longer because they just don't understand it feels like a miscarriage of justice to them they do it, it's it, you know they feel I shouldn't be in here and that can be more even more psychologically damaging than anything else because because you did commit something so minor it has been abolished why am I still here yeah it's very difficult and thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and spreading awareness about it no problem I mean there is a group of campaigners have started a petition where because there's the government hosts uh, petitions on their website where after 10,000 signatures 
the minister has to give a response after 100,000. They have to debate it in Parliament and so on. Because so far, there's been more focus in the House of Lords about IPPs. And there's been quite a few debates about it, but not so much in Parliament. That's where it's a lot quieter. So, yeah, so if you go on social media and search for the hashtag uh, Justice for IPPs, there's some more information and, and hopefully you can sign that if you want to. But also, I mean, there's the podcast that we're hosting at the moment, Trapped, the IPP prisoner scandal, which is on most, I think, major platforms, Spotify, Audible, all of that sort of thing. But yeah, it's important that people are informed because they're the only ones that can put this pressure on Alex Chalk. And, and he is the man of the moment at the moment. Well, I will pop a link to your podcast in the show notes. And thank you so much, Sam. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast today and, and sharing this with us. Okay, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Sam. I really love to hear from you, so please reach out to me to let me know what you thought of this episode. Please rate this podcast on whatever platform you listen, or let me know if you have any questions or guest requests. All of my links are in the show notes.